This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we're getting dressed in tartan to celebrate the global story behind this unique pattern. We talk community consultation with the landscape architecture firm Scape, plus we visit the studio of an emerging Czech designer. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. Tartan. It's a textile that has become a symbol of Scotland. The pattern holds histories of rebellion, tradition and oppression in its weave, a combination that has made it the subject of the main house exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum in Dundee, Scotland. To find out how tartan has been absorbed, subverted and shaped over the centuries, this show's producer, May Lee Evans, ventured to Dundee to learn the rules of the grid. Tartan. A patterned cloth of vertical and horizontal bands crossing this way and that. Whether opting for a simple design or a more complex weave, for many tartan is a signifier of Scotland, a trope you might find adorned on a biscuit tin or novelty hat. But this pattern is so much more. Tartan is a radical textile filled with contradictions. Can you name another weave that's been favoured by punks, the military and fans of the Bay City Rollers? The foundation of this pattern, the grid, is a staple and at the V&A exhibition is echoed throughout the layout of the space. Under the glowing light of a projected pattern and surrounded by checks in every shade and variation, I meet curator at the V&A, Kersey Hassard, who explains why geometry and grids are so key to the textile. Grid is so key to tartan because when you're weaving tartan, it's the idea of the warp and the weft. It's the basic weaving structure of any textile, but for tartan, the grid is intrinsic. The grid opens up tartan tennis possibilities beyond textiles. And these possibilities are numerous. One adventurous example showcases how tartan has inspired architecture. Dom Hans van der Laan is a Benedictine monk who lived in the Netherlands and was integral and found in the Bosch School of Architecture. And he basically was really focused on and fascinated by the idea of tartan and what you could do with a tartan and turned one tartan in particular, the Douglas tartan, into architectural planning and architectural structures. The monastery that he lived in near Maastricht in the Netherlands was entirely designed around the proportions of, of tartan, which is incredible. But as well as inspiring the built environment, this cloth has been adopted as a marker of identity, allowing the wearer to proudly display where they are from or aspirations of who they'd like to be. These are three ensembles that were worn by an American socialite and fashion journalist called Frances Farquharson. She was American, but she became a Farquharson. And when she got married, she basically chose to present her new identity through tartan, but in a way that felt very relevant to her. And she still operated within fashionable circles, so she chose to commission a wardrobe of contemporary for the 1960s um, ensembles, but then she was also the wife of a Scottish laird, so she was going to lots of Highland games and Highland gatherings, so she had the more traditional side of that captured in um, yeah, a really traditional like cape and, and suit ensemble. So I think it's that idea of tartan becoming part of your identity, but you incorporating that in a way that still feels very true to you. This is the 1950s and 1960s, but you could say that for you know the modern day, how yeah, tartan's very much a, it's a global textile. 
The global reach of tartan is also explored through the exhibition's acknowledgement of the Indian cloth madras. The fabric's provenance has sometimes been misplaced. There was a myth for quite a long time that the Indian textile madras was inspired by Scottish regiments coming to India in the 18th and 19th century. And then local textile manufacturers seeing the men in their kilts and the Scottish regiments and then that becoming incorporated into local textile practices. In actual fact, Madras has its completely own history, uh, design trajectory in terms of where it's ended up in the world, in the Caribbean, in Japan. There's proof that Madras existed for hundreds of years before Scottish regiments ever came to India. But when you look at Madras, there's definitely a lot of crossovers with tartan, the idea of the grids, a lot of the colourways are quite similar. And that was one of the things we wanted to show in the exhibition was the fact that textiles like these aren't unique to Scotland. Most countries in the world have got something that resembles a tartan, but in fact has yeah got a completely unique design trajectory. Then how designers have taken that and adapted that in the modern day. We've got contemporary interpretations of Madras by the Jamaican Scottish fashion designer Nicholas Daly, who used Madras for his 2018 collection. The global connections of tartan don't stop there. The patterns cloth has gained momentum in Japan. In fact, the country is now tartan's biggest exporter. We think starts in the 1970s. It's inspired by Vivian Westwood, and then that becomes a part of Japanese street style. But then it's just it's completely like ubiquitous in uh, yeah in Japanese design to the point where it's used for branding in Japanese department stores. What's clear from the items on show is that tartan has the potential of incredible duality. Its meaning shifts entirely with the wearer, leading to instances where the same pattern has been worn by opposing groups. Tartan's used by police forces, it's used by military forces in school uniforms, but then at the same time, that exact same textile can also be a textile of rebellion and protest, and those two things can sit alongside each other, which is pretty incredible. You've got Tartan used as a recruiting poster for a military campaign. Very, very similar Tartan is used in the, the boy trousers, uh, the seditionary trousers that were um, designed by Vivian Westwood. So again, it's all about how, how it's used, how it's designed, how that designer wants to use it, and they're completely con- in control of that. The textiles history also has darker stories which have recently come to light, including its use in slavery and as a symbol of ownership and control. There's some correspondence from the plantation owners writing to the textile producers asking for prices for tartan so that it could be supplied to clothe their slaves, so their slaves would have identifying look through the textile. There's also other proof of enslaved people wearing tartan runaway slave um, adverts that we have reports of slaves, descriptions of their clothing, the most kind of identifying thing. Two examples of those um, those enslaved people were, were wearing tartan. Tartan has taken many forms and shapes over the years and is not only limited to fashion. How about a total tartan takeover for an interior? The original one of that is Balmoral, so Queen Victoria and Prince Albert's Highland residence. They build it in the 1840s and decorate that in tartan, so tartan wallpaper, tartan 
carpet, bed covers, anything you can imagine is covered in tartan. And then that's been taken forward by designers from like the 1840s, 1850s onwards. We look at that through a couple of quite eclectic examples. So one of the designers who's really looked at it in terms of a sort of tartanization of an interior is the American designer Tom Brown. So he designed what he called this total tartan takeover. It's part of New York Fashion Week. It was for a Vogue feature. Tom Brown's own tartan that he registered himself, muted like greyish blue. He looked at completely tartanized interior, again with the tartan walls, tartan chairs, all the sitters that were in tartan as well. There's even a tartan little dog handbag that's definitely one of my <laughs> one of my favorite things. The same idea can be taken from the 1840s to 2020, but how the designer uses it and the tartan they use, it can still be completely contemporary and relevant. What I want visitors to take away is just the kind of how tartan is always a relevant textile, how it's always been kind of at the forefront of, of innovation, how it's appeared in almost every part of the globe and how it's always been kind of transformed and reinvented by designers and most importantly by the people who wear it. So when you next spot this textile, be it on a tourist souvenir or walking down your local high street or even on a high fashion runway, maybe take a moment to reflect on the stories of rebellion, identity and power held in its weave. For Monocle in Dundee, I'm Maylie Evans. Thanks, Maylie. Tartan is on at the Victoria and Albert Dundee until the 14th of January 2024. So there's plenty of time to add it to your calendar. We'll be back in just a moment. When the sun's out and the mercury rises, there's only one thing to do. Dive into a body of invigorating water. Monocle's new title, Swim in Sun, features the best spots to cool off in. Whether it's a city lido, glamorous beach club, or tranquil lake surrounded by trees, we'll have you dreaming of your next splash. The restorative, life-affirming power of being around water is undeniable. Be it through cutting laps at a hotel pool, swimming out to a floating dock, or reclining nearby with a glass of crisp rosé. So sit back, flick through, and discover Monocle's favourite places to take a dip around the world. Featuring beautiful photography, a smart linen cover, and essays penned by our favourite writers. Every page is packed full of inspiration and will leave you feeling salty and sun-kissed. So grab a towel and jump in. The water's just perfect. Scape is an American landscape architecture and urban design firm which is presenting work at this year's Venice Biennale. Their contribution is called Workshopping the Chattahoochee. The display unpacks a set of guidelines which Scape created for development along the Chattahoochee River in Atlanta. The waterway cuts through a host of neighbourhoods, from industrial ends to suburban enclaves, connecting a range of different socioeconomic groups. As part of Scape's process, they consulted closely with the local community, an approach that can be particularly challenging. Thankfully, the firm developed a unifying scheme which satisfied the many different groups and stakeholders and served the varied communities it cuts through. To find out more about the successful consultation process, I caught up with Nans Veron, design director with Scape at the Venice Biennale. We discussed their process and he provided a few ideas for designers working in the community too. 
what we are seeing in the exhibition, uh, it's a series of maps that we use during the design process that were actually hand-drawn by stakeholders, community members. Uh, it really kind of follows the river, so it's quite, it's quite nice to see. And on top of those maps, what you can see are those transparent layers, those acetate layers, where on each one of them, with community members, we developed alternatives for the alignment of the greenway. Tell us a bit about those alignments and those alternatives you were exploring. We had three of those. We had what we call the, the path of least resistance, which was really trying to like understand what easiest way to actually align that greenway and that multimodal trail along the banks of the Chiyuchi. So it's very much looking at ownership, trying to avoid private, you know, on land, trying to avoid land acquisition and trying to really connect existing parks and public spaces. The second one is what we called the, the path of least ecological impact. You know, the history of the Chauchi and the river has been, it's, it's been widely impacted by urban sprawl and development. And still, there are still some areas that have been like, you know, somewhat isolated and protected. And so the idea is to very much bypass those kinds of ecological assets and then trying to reconnect and restore habitats and native ecologies where we could, where, you know, some of those areas were actually most impacted. The last alignment option that you can see on those drawings is what we call the network of destination. So try to think of all the libraries, the schools, the community centers, the parks that are actually existing, and then try to imagine that very rich web connecting all of those assets and really trying to provide people and access not just to the greenway itself but to those resources when you start to like overlay those three alternatives you really get like something fairly complex but eventually the idea was you know as a next step in the process through community engagement again trying to to go from three alternatives to one hybrid alternative which we call the preferred alternative for the riverlands which is what we use now to try to implement the greenway and the trail i mean i want to ask you about community engagement more broadly. I know speaking offline to you before before we interviewed, um, I, I kind of raised the danger of maybe involving people that aren't, in quotes, you know, professionals in the built environment. Why is it so integral to your practice and how do you do it in a way where your, I guess, knowledge and understanding is still essential? For us, stakeholder and community engagement is like core to every single project pretty much that we do at SCAPE, especially in planning stages. For us, we don't really see it as a danger. I think for us, it's about asking the right questions. And eventually, every single project that we implement, that we build, is going to have an impact on people's life. And so they, they should have a voice during the design process. So one thing that we really want to do is to engage early and often. We don't want to just show up at the end of like a design process and be like, you know, oh, that's, that's the design, and you know, here it is, and, and, and take it as it is. We want people to participate. We want people to tell us what they need, things that they would like to see, things that they don't like to see or they don't want to see near where they live. And we are really trying through that process to both educate ourselves about the place we work in, but also, you know, sometimes educate people about the work we do, but also the the things that we try to design and the, the way we actually do it. It's even more true when it comes to climate adaptation and resilience projects where, you know, sometimes it's hard for people to like understand the science. And so, Part of the engagement, uh, because we see engagement and, you know, as going like both ways, it's not like a one-way thing. 
we are also sharing a lot and getting a lot back from the people and the community members we work with. I mean, how do you how do you also see it changing from community to community? I mean, this is a, a, a huge master plan for a huge stretch of river. I think 150 kilometres for us metric folk. How do, how do you see community priorities change as you move along the river? For us, community engagement is not one size fits all, right? Every community is different. We have to engage every, every single community a different way. And so what we did, for example, for this project is that we actually subdivided the 100-mile project area into three sub-areas. For each one of those sub-areas, we actually uh, worked with local stakeholders to create what we called um, a sub-area committee. So that committee was made of leaders in the communities, uh, elected officials, people working in different municipal or state agencies, and that really helped us making sure that the engagement that we will bring more broadly to the public was actually informed by, by that kind of first level. Uh, that was also a way to, like, to inform the types of things we will do during our engagement process with the different communities. We will not necessarily ask the same questions. We will not necessarily project, uh, present the project the same way. Um, and so all of that was very much informed by you know, that kind of first tier of uh, locals that we worked with and that really helped us craft something that uh, we hope was you know, tailored to every one of those communities along the way. If somebody's maybe not familiar with the community consultation process, or certainly it's something that's not, you know, if they're a designer and it's not common in their practice, what are, what are some of those early steps that you should be taking if, if you're doing this? That's a tough one. One of the first things we do, and that's something that we're actually presenting here uh, at the Biennale, we started with building a model. The first week when we kicked up the project, we actually rented a, lo- a very large van. We put the entire escape team in the van, our you know, partners and collaborators, some of our clients, uh, and we started driving down the river. So you know, during the day, we would like, visit sites, engage with the local stakeholders, and at night, we would host public meetings. And what, we, what we're doing with the physical model that we built, we started like, collecting information. So you can see uh, in the installation, uh, hundreds of flags basically on that model that have been literally nailed down by community members. And on each one of those flags, there are either aspirations, their personal aspirations, things that they really wanted to share with us, stories, assets, you know, things that they did where they were when they were children or things that they like to do now, things that they like to see, but also things that, you know, they wouldn't like necessarily seeing along the Chalauchi. And so for us, that was the first step, really trying to like, understand and listen. I think the first step, you know, going back to your initial question, the first step in, for me in the engagement process is to listen. Then it's about sharing. For the first few months, we listened. Then we started, like, creating those alternatives. We had to share them back with the public. So that's why we also went to present free, at least, options, because we wanted to, like, give people opportunities to discuss each one of them. And that's why each one of those um, alternatives I was describing earlier have been crafted the way they've been crafted because they start to become a basis to engage in a discussion about the design itself. That was the second step, so listening, sharing. And then as we were like trying to like finalize, we were working on finalizing the, the design for the Riverlands and the, the final alignment, we were constantly, you know, in touch and we had that kind of back and forth with communities really trying to, again, adjust some of our early ideas, concepts uh, to their specific needs in very specific communities. And so that's how we, we kind of, you know, went through that process. 
I would say what's interesting with that project specifically is that, you know, aligning a greenway along a river, it's not rocket science. Uh, I think what was very unique about the way we did it was creating a process, giving a voice to people, and making sure that that vision, that project, was actually community-informed. Amazing. And then, I guess, just finally, and again, this is uh, us talking off air, but you, you sort of mentioned, like, maybe there's potential for hesitation from some people for fear that, you know, community consultation and, I guess, the improvement of the areas they live in might lead to them being priced out or, or gentrification. How, how do you address that in, in your work? Engagement is core to every single one of our projects. And one thing that is kind of constant is that people most of the time are afraid of change. And, you know, I think we all are. It's, it's kind of scary when you see something, you know, coming into your backyard or very close to where you live and, you know, you think it's going to have an impact. And so what was interesting with the, the Riverlands project more specifically is that in some areas where we start to, like, see more affluent communities, you know, wealthier communities, they were actually scared of seeing a greenway in their backyard because they felt that, you know, it would, like, decrease the value of their properties, that, you know, people will be literally welcome or invited where they lived. And so there was that kind of, you know, nimbism aspect to it, like not in my backyard kind of thing, very strong. And it was mostly some of the northern areas of the study, uh, of the study area in the south. But what was interesting is that we, we were actually working with communities that have been historically underserved. And so here the they were also scared of change, but for different reasons, because some of them were feeling that a greenway project coming so close to their houses would actually probably price them out, right? You mentioned gentrification, so that was definitely the fear. So one thing that we really worked on as part of the planning study, which wasn't necessarily part of the initial scope and contract, was trying to create a series of recommendations to limit displacement. So the risk was for those people to be displaced. And so we started to like leverage a series of tools, economic tools, that could be implemented as a project is being implemented to make sure that those populations will be able to stay where they live currently. That was Nans Varon from landscape and urban design studio, Scape. You can see the studio's work at the Venice Biennale until November. Textile designer Andrea Vietla-Chilova made a name for herself as a student at Central St. Martins in London. With experience at Stockholm's Acne Studios, Mark Jacobs in New York, and in Paris at Kenzo, the emerging designer has quite the CV already. Today, the maker has returned to her roots in Czechia to draw inspiration from the landscapes and folklore of her native Bohemia. The journalist, Morgan Childs, paid a visit to Andrea's studio in central Prague. It's a rather inhospitable morning when I turn up at Andrea Vitlachilova's studio. The weather is grey and drizzly and dour, but the young designer greets me warmly on the street and beckons me out of the rain, then leads me up to an apartment with windows overlooking the Strahov Gardens. It's a bright, airy, feminine oasis, swathed in shades of pink and crimson and tangerine. When you spend so much time like looking at colours, you need the natural light. I'm like a flower, I just need light. <laughs> it's an apt metaphor. Working with a Technicolor palette, Vitla Chileva herself is pointed resolutely in the direction of brightness and cheer. Her work is ebulliently and unapologetically feminine. 
handbags studded with Czech crystals, oversized earrings crafted from resin-coated flower petals, and most famously, silk scarves emblazoned with the flora and fauna of the Bohemian countryside. Those scarves are the most unmistakably Czech pieces in her collection, and feature imagery from Bohemian folktales, fairy tale forests and fields of poppies, and even her grandmother's porcelain place settings. But it wasn't until Vitla Chileva left the country to study at Central St. Martin's that she developed a positive relationship with her roots. When I left for London, I was kind of ashamed of being Czech. I mean, it sounds really harsh, but when I first started uni and it was a group of us of 12 people and there were people from France, the UK, Japan, all around the world. Like the French people, they were like, oh, I'm French. And they were so proud of it. And for me, it was a bit, a bit like, I always thought that people looked at people from the Czech Republic, Poland, as like the Eastern Europe, kind of like mafia-like. They, they kind of just didn't know really the part of Europe. And then as I spent more time in uh, London and we had more projects in, the, in uni, which were more personal, I kind of started looking at my own heritage as like an advantage. And also kind of the distance from home, it made my home much more desirable for me. Home for Vitla Chileva is Mjani, a village nestled in the heart of Bohemia, a little more than an hour's drive from Prague. When I note that its population is registered at around 400, the designer insists that's an overestimation. As a teenager, she felt hemmed in by her village, she says. But today, she sees how it left a lasting impression. Whenever I could, I was cycling with my friends around the area. In terms of colors, it's kind of where my first source of information came from. I think, like, if you grow up in New York or in Prague, you have this book of colors around you, like insane amounts of colors. Whereas when you're growing up in a tiny village, you have really natural tones around yourself. And for me, I really focus on sunrises and sunsets, like the different tones of each of the colors. And I kind of became obsessed with colors from there. And I always fall back on that. Vitla Chileva's studio is a museum to her burgeoning career. She shows me a tapestry she created hanging over her sofa, designed to complement a dress she made for the artist Grayson Perry. The tapestry is an homage to Czech legends, both historic and fantastical. And her first ever handbag sits alone on a shelf, sporting a bamboo handle, gently worn and misshapen by frequent use. The designer has since retired the bamboo elements. Her pieces today feature wooden handles repurposed from the Czech furniture brand Ton. At first, I thought I would go into the forests and just find really old branches and then maybe work with that. And then I was talking to, I think, my husband, and we were sitting on ton chairs. Ton makes bent wood uh, chairs mostly, but also tables. So I approached them and I was thinking, because probably they would have some not so perfect parts as well. And they obviously did because each factory has these distorted um, parts. And they would only use it for heat. Like each of the employees, they could just take it home and burn it for for, for fire or oh, something. Wow, yeah. it was really going to go to waste. <laughs> and I thought it was so sad because they already spent the time on it as well. And also some of the parts, the ones that I use, they're either smaller or bigger or there's like a dent. It's so special because you would never have the same exact part over. So I approached them and they were really open to it, which was great. And now I feel like it is like the ultimate full circle. 
Vitra Chilova also works with glass beads made by Preciosa, a manufacturer based in Bohemia's Crystal Valley, where the local glassmakers have been active for several centuries. The designer tells me that Preciosa's rigorous inspection process prevents the company from using glass beads with even the slightest discoloration. They now pass those imperfect beads along to Vitlachilova, who takes pride both in her sustainable sourcing and in amplifying another heritage brand. Especially these two brands, they're really big on the Czech heritage, which is amazing. And they've survived a lot. And I think Ton is really amazing because they have a big factory in Bystrice pod Hostinem, which is in Moravia. Beautiful place, beautiful place. And they really work with their archives. They work with what it was before and rework it into a modern version of itself. And the people are so passionate that they're working in maybe the same factory that their father worked in or grandfather. And it's the same in Preciosa as well. Most of the employees, they've been there for generations. So they've passed the craft from like father to son, to son to son, which is beautiful, I think. For Monocle in Prague, I'm Morgan Childs. My thanks to Morgan Childs for that report. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced and edited by May Lee Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. Listening.